Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. We're picking up with a guest we had on a prior show, and we'll call this part two, because we want to continue a discussion that we know is important to many of you and about which our guest has very strong opinions. Can we say that our guest is an evangelist for community living? You know, that's a very good way to put it. Yes, That yes. fits him perfectly. So uh, many of you who follow us regularly, uh, you would have seen already the episode. I don't know whether it was last week or the week before, but you would have seen an episode with David A. Smith. So we have him back to continue this same discussion because there's so much meat in this, and there's lots to say about where do you live when you retire. And since virtually all of our audience is over 60, you know, we want to communicate to you that there's a wonderful world of options out there that you may not know about, and you may just be sort of uh, vegetating in your homes uh, and living with a lot of restrictions that come with living in a house as you age when there are so many alternatives, some very good alternatives that David A. Smith is an authority on, has written a book on and other things. Right. It's so about I, time. It's about time. One of his books. So, David, uh, thank you for coming back. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and incidentally, this is really where he is coming back. Often, when you see people do a series of shows on guests, you know, you probably know that that they'll record them all at one time, and it, and it is nice when you do it that way because then then everything flows together. There's no gap of uh, a couple of weeks or so or longer, so that has that advantage. But but still, it's not a new episode in the sense that you're getting back together and other stuff has happened, et cetera. So in this case, it really is. So uh, we were asking ourselves just before we started the show, exactly what was the last question we asked last time or what was the topic? So when, when you watch us regularly and we're picking up on a two or three part series, it really will be that. It'll be that we, we broke and we reconvened later to pick up. So sometimes they don't, you know, they don't come together, splice together perfectly, but we think it makes for a better show. We're fresher and more focused and have different ideas after thinking about and it. And we have different outfits on from the last show. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not yeah. that we couldn't have done that before, but... Well, fashion know. considerations are a very important criterion on this show. We have show. our consultants on that. Yes, yes. And uh, who is providing our suits? I've, I need to talk to them. I've not gotten any. So, in any case... Um, David, uh, you have some slides, too, so we want to get couple, to those. Yeah. Strong roots are essential for a healthy tree, especially your family tree. That's why you work hard to take care of your family every day. At Tucker Allen, we know that taking care of your family means planning for the future. Our team provides personalized estate planning to help you protect your family, your legacy, and your future. From wills and trusts to long-term care and estate planning. Count on Tucker Allen. Personalized estate planning made simple. Let's start out talking about we, we were discussing the financial issues and how people afford to move. Some people think, well, gee, I'm in my house 
it's largely paid for, if not entirely paid for. And for many of you, we know that statistically, less than a majority, but a, close to a majority of you live in a house that's fully paid off. The rest of you have a ton of equity. But you still think, many of you, that you can't afford to consider moving. Can you speak to that, David? Sure. Um, I just want to double back for just a second in yeah. terms of the— We don't uh, follow any fixed agenda yeah, we on have no. show. <laughs> I, I'll get there in just a second. Um, but the point I wanted to make is that I'm actually an evangelist for people making an informed decision based on facts where you can pull yourself out of the emotion and do what ultimately is the best for you and the facts prevail. So in other words, sometimes somebody might want to stay where they are. Yes, and sometimes that actually makes sense, and I would encourage them to do it. Okay, that's fair. Good point. Yeah, and so part of the factual and the understanding has to do with the financial part because, as you say, many people who live in their homes, particularly if the mortgage is fully paid or was taken out some time ago and is nearly paid, don't really think about what it costs them to live every month. When you go to a typical retirement community, they're all a little bit different in terms of the financial structure. Right. So I'll just talk in general. At the typical place for a one-bedroom apartment, let's say it costs around $3,000 a month. When you think about that, it's $100 a day. When you try to say, how does that, and and for a two-bedroom apartment, a typical two-bedroom apartment is in the range of about $5,000 a month or $167 a day. Incidentally, for those of you who are uh, paying attention, you know that there is, you can be on a cruise ship for $80 a day. Eighty dollars yeah. a day. Yeah, yeah. And I, people I can see actually, why people retire on cruise ships. People then. actually are start. There are some providers. Um, there's one on the West Coast that I'm familiar with that actually promote retiring onto a cruise ship. Wow. Yeah. But when you think about it, cruise ship or even park ship, right? In in one of our communities that are land bound, um, it's less than the Marriott Courtyard. Mm-hmm. No, wait, what did you just say? A park ship? Yeah, it's a park cruise ship. What does that mean? Well, it's on land. It's parked. I know, but but tell me more fully what you mean. It's a metaphor for... Oh, for all the different kinds and scopes of activities and services, not just care, but food and multiple food venues, entertainment venues, workout communities. Yeah, I mean, that really is... Card rooms, libraries. That's a great way to think about this. And I think that I think you mentioned that phrase before, and it really it really is a fair way to characterize it because the the parallels are uncanny. It you do have food menus that go on and on. You can have trips and stuff. Now you are in one place, but that you have various activities. Right. I mean, lots of you know, like historic. I always trips think of and, it like a resort. I really do. Yeah, yeah. With, with excursions. With, with excursion, the, yeah, there you go. Yeah, there. opportunities to interact with in the community and outside the community. And we may talk some more about connection later, but that's really an important part of what the experience is. And, you know, David, I, I think, too, you know, as our home ages, we're going to have all these expenses. You know, a water heater, that can be, what, 1500 bucks. And, and so you're not having to deal with those expenses or, you know, the hassle yeah, and the, that's absolutely right. And the fact is most people, and I know people who do focus group studies for the industry, mm-hmm. right? And consistently when they talk to prospective residents who haven't moved in, 
and we ask, how much are you spending now? What are your monthly expenditures? People just don't know because it's not something you're ordinarily considering. And you're not thinking about it, right? Yeah. So there's a worksheet, which you have a copy of. Mm-hmm. Um, Can we throw that up? Yeah. So this just compares your costs. And if you look at the bottom, there's basically two columns. One is the example of what it costs a homeowner who, let's say, has $250,000 worth of equity, right? Um, and the other is in a typical retirement com- community where many of these services that are pointed out here are included. So in the $3,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment, you can see how that compares over on the other side to what it actually costs to live in that $250,000 imaginary home someplace. Okay? Hmm. And this is news to a lot of people. As a matter of fact, I'd never really thought about it that way. Yeah. Because most people don't think in terms of what you spend per month. It's just not something we ordinarily compute, except we think about our mortgage. And so when the mortgage is paid, we don't think about the other expenses. So, but you still have your real estate taxes you have to pay every year. So so on the list, yeah. you're, you're right. Here's a list yeah. of a bunch of them. So the first is the lost income potential on your locked-in equity. On 250000 assume you can get a 5% return being pretty risk-averse today. Um, that's about $1,000 a month. If you got a half a million dollars worth of equity, you're giving up $2,000 a month. And I hope you guys understand how it's, you got to think about that. If you're sophisticated, you may be saying, well, yeah, but that may be made up in appreciation. But number one, don't count on it in the future. I mean, what we've seen in the last few years, uh, you know, we, we've gone through long stretches without appreciation. Right. And we may be going through a period in what, you know, Japan has lived with for the last two, now going on three decades. And that's a no appreciation. So I would set that aside, but I would, even a better point is even if you have the appreciation, the fact is if you don't sell the home, you never experience that in your standard of living. It's locked up. So it's like the rest of your equity. You may say, well, gee, my equity may grow, and it may, but you're experiencing no benefit from that. And so it's money that is just sitting on a shelf as far as you're concerned. Now, when you pass away, your asset will be sold. But yeah, that 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 is a factor that I think no one considers. They don't. It's hidden. Yeah. It's not really thought about. And then you go through some of the rest of these. Weekly housekeeping services typically included. Um, Scheduled transportation. Well, if you are driving, there's the cost of maintaining the automobile and operating it. Mm -hmm. Or if you're paying somebody else to drive you, there's the cost there. Typically, Scheduled transportation is included at a senior community. Property tax, insurance, utilities, lawn care, landscaping, snow removal, meals. Typically, most communities include one or two meals per day. I just said, assume a meal costs $7.50. It's hard to get a meal for $7.50. But but some people cook at home, and so that that may be fair. But if anything, it's on the low side. So if you throw 60 meals in, that's 450 bucks a month that's included at the retirement community. And then some of these you just don't have. A doorman, a security service, security monitoring, classes, 
um, and so forth. But even on this very conservative column, the pri- the cost of s- living in a one-bedroom apartment at a community where you have all these other amenities and services and opportunities for social connection, very close in terms of cost. And like you say, if the water heater goes out of the roof or there's some home maintenance, it can wind up costing you a lot more to stay at home than it would to be in a community. Right. Also, your your costs, just one more thought, in the community are much more predictable. True. Because they commit. Yeah. For some True. period of time. Yeah. Uh, another point, I guess, that is is not reflected in there, and it's a way to think differently about your equity is – like right now, we made an assumption that you would earn some money on your equity, and you you should you should think about whether you want to have that money on a shelf. But the other point is, the principle itself is: do you want to make use of that principle? And if you decide that you want to make use of that principle versus maybe a priority in which you want to leave you know assets to a child, maybe you have a child that is going to depend on whatever you're going to leave them. That might affect your decision there, but. For most of most of the people that we talk to, their children are not going to be dependent, either because they have enough money to where it's not relevant, or or simply because their children have good careers. And in which case, you know, you can free up that money and actually use the principal. So as long as you live in the house, you can't use the principal unless you're going to do something like a reverse mortgage, which I think generally that's a bad idea. Uh, that's a different conversation. Yeah, but, we've done a few shows on that one. Yeah, yeah. I think usually it's a bad idea. But so this allows you, though, if you sell your house to move into uh, some sort of community, I almost use the word facility, the F yeah, word. Yeah, we don't yeah. say Look that word. Look at how you've morphed already. Going to have to yeah. wash your mouth out with soap. Uh, no, no. So, but if you if you free up that money, then suddenly what's not counted here is the principal itself is available to use. So you can, you know, if you have $100,000 in your house or 200000 or 250000 that money is available. Believe it or not, you have permission. You own it. You can use that money. It's like I told a lady the other day that I was working with as a prospect in our community who's 92 years old, living in her home. She's still at home by herself? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's very typical. Yeah, yeah. And um, she, she thinks of her home equity as saving for a rainy day. <laughs> And I said, oh, my God, it's pouring. (laughs) (laughs) This is what you've been waiting for. Yeah, yeah, there's been climate change that's been occurring over the years. Uh, uh, So I agree that that if people do the math properly, it definitely makes sense. Before we – I want to transition to some slides in which we'll demonstrate what some of these trends are. But but before we do that, you're going to kind of talk about kind of what is this phenomenon that explains the fact that that you're saying there's all these wonderful communities out there that didn't exist in prior generations and all these alternatives that at least should be considered. It's right. not for everybody, but you argue that, that for many people it would be good and yet they're not doing it. How yeah. do you explain the fact that you have something good there and and yet people are not in the numbers doing it that you would expect? Yeah, so there is a slide, and I call it a bridge of fear. I also call it a readiness gap. So if you start over on the left side, you'll see one of 
tens of thousands of prospective residents who are considering whether or not staying in their home makes sense. We move into our homes for lots of reasons at different ages and stages of our lives, and often that doesn't contemplate being late 70s, early 80s, and having things fall apart in your world as our as old age creeps in on all of us. And so the house, in terms of satisfying what your needs are, shrinks in terms of the benefit it has to offer. And yet for the guy who's standing over looking across the bridge at this beautiful castle on the hill that has all of these benefits as a parked cruise ship with a private residence that's nicer than any cabin on a on a cruise ship to retreat to. to. Um, it costs about the same or in some cases even less. There's all kinds of benefits. Mm-hmm. But the prospect, the prospective resident, nine out of ten of them that don't move even though the house is shrunk in terms of its ability to service what their needs and their desires are in the next chapter of their life as they enter into old age, they don't want to let go. They say, I'm not ready yet. The people who are living over on the other side, whether it's in my community or somebody else's, all say, I wish I would have moved sooner. And, you know, I really love how you phrase it, David. You say it's not about convincing them. It's about empowering them. Yes, and, and showing them all the benefits. So and maybe in some cases it might, you know, it's, it's better for them to stay in their own home for whatever reason. But I would think that in most cases it is better to go on to one of these beautiful retirement communities. Yeah. So, so in a lot more cases than it happens. Yeah, so it definitely should be a ten percent. It's it's almost impossible for me to believe it shouldn't be fifteen or twenty percent. Yeah, and that that's is a point that maybe we dwell on for a second. Some people may be watching this and thinking, well, why do you think that everyone should live in a retirement community of some sort? And we don't we don't think that. I don't think you're arguing that. I'm not I, arguing I'm not. that. No. And and none of us is getting paid relating to whether or not you move into a retirement community. I think that I think the main point that that I'll probably all three of us agree on is that there as you've heard me say before, is that there are just these great places that, yeah, I would expect there will be some percentage of people who will say, look, great as it is, I really want to be in my home. And and so that that you would expect. But right now, the numbers are relatively small, and people are waiting till a long time to do it. And you'll see this in just a minute, so I don't want to talk too much about it. So, so when we talk about, though, this topic on the show, all we're saying is that the number of people that have chosen to move into, you know, this great alternative you call a castle on a hill, you would expect to be a lot larger if people were really looking at it objectively. And 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 instead, it's like a whole lot of people are quivering on the other side of that canyon, afraid to to try to cross this bridge. Yeah. So change is hard. Any kind of change. It is. Even though it's the only thing that's constant. Constant, right. Right. For each one of us as humans, we hold on to what we have in the situation and the stability. And a change to moving from the home where your family has grown up and you have it's, memories. Yeah. It's a right. big stop. It's a repository of your sense of identity. And that's and a security. strong point you're making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big factor. It's that's it. That is the factor. So my objective and what I've dedicated my career to is to help people see past the fear of that 
in order to understand objectively and rationally the logic of does it make sense or it doesn't. And the way you do that is you acknowledge the fear, the fear of moving, the fear of letting go, the fear of giving up what's comfortable, what feels safe, secure, familiar, right? Because that's what people are holding on to. And this fear of change is amplified in this particular decision-making process by how we feel about aging in general in our population, which is pretty disparaging. We look down upon it. We frown upon it. We make jokes about it. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's not something that anybody that I know looks forward to. Then there's Mm -hmm. this generational bias because for this generation of seniors in particular, you know, we talk a lot about the generational bias of um, ex-gens and... Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, all the younger folks want to text and texting is even too slow. But this generation, right, of seniors now, the silent generation, they're used to people coming into their homes, Washing, washing the window while they fill up the gas for you. They're used to a completely different <laughs> method of communication and one that requires the investment of time and personal yeah. relationships. And- yeah. So in order to help somebody overcome their fear, their fear of loss of identity um, and the fear of letting go of the home, it requires the investment of time. Mm-hmm. And if you have some skills, some questioning skills based on the psychology of change, typically it's called motivational interviewing and other such skills, which basically just have to do with reverse, what we would think of as reverse psychology, learning about who the person is, where they're coming from, more importantly, bringing that fresh to their own recollection as to who they are at their core, mm-hmm. and then evaluating how that aspirational self right, how we like to think of ourselves, is actually doing in the situation in the home that you're in. Yeah, yeah. And that's the process. It's not convincing someone that it w- will be better. It's helping them acknowledge, reflect, understand that what they have may not be working the way that it did when they first moved. Yeah, 40 yeah. years and, earlier or whatever. And the problem is, though, that that as time goes on, you become less and less capable, all of us become less and less capable of doing, of initiating that process, of doing that analysis, of summoning the focus and the energy required to investigate and to make a, an important decision. It takes a brave, healthy human being to look old age in the eye and say, I'm still going to be me. Yeah. Yeah. One way or another, I'm going to continue to evolve and try to put forth my best strengths and abilities that I have left and go face the world. And And make good decisions. And there's not enough awareness or experts like you around to help seniors make an informed decision and to navigate through this process. There really isn't. Unfortunately, most people who are in the senior housing industry, it is changing, but most of them still have a very transactional view of how sales works. Yeah. And instead of helping somebody through the emotional problems or touting the benefits, right, which are real but irrelevant to most prospects until they're ready to accept that this is something they want to do, telling somebody how horrible cigarettes are has no impact on having somebody quit. I was with another prospect last week um, 
God bless her, a lady who um, just had part of her lung removed who was on oxygen and smoking a cigarette. Logic and reason had no place in how she was thinking about what she was doing. Um, And the same is true for many of our senior prospects who try to live in homes that just no longer fit their needs. And the worst time to make this transition, though, is after some sort of crisis, which I'm sure if we were to poll this, uh, that probably a substantial percentage of the people who go into some sort of assisted living or beyond are people who've had a stroke, they've had a heart attack, you know, some catastrophic event has happened. And that's really the worst. I mean, yeah, better then than not. But the point is, it's the worst time because you have no control over the decision. Somebody else has to take charge right. and pick up the slack of things that you could have done on your own. Yeah. Whether it's clean out your home or figure out how to sell the house, how to take care of all of the different things that are up in the air. Yeah, your life has changed overnight. You don't have that independence anymore. No yeah. Yeah. And it may be that you have no voice in where you end up because others have to do all of it for you. There's so many reasons to think about what exists as an alternative to living alone in your home. And, and Part of that is just having the confidence that you can. Yeah. So it's yeah. not just the information, but it's the confidence that you can do that. And we help people build confidence by enabling and empowering them to tell us stories of times in their life that reflect who they are and when they were able to make significant change. So when you say confidence, uh, you don't, part of it's financial confidence, but you've already talked about that. But beyond that, it's confidence that they're able, that they would be able to pull it off. First day of school, Mm -hmm. junior high school, where are you going to sit for lunch? Right. Yeah, that's and what I'm talking about. I, you know, and it brings me to okay, another point. I, I think it would probably it's probably easier for couples to make that transition together, but you have someone you know that's single or widowed. Very good point. I would think that would really really be, be scary. Scary, yeah. Yeah. You know, doing it alone. Yeah, yeah it and, is. and that's when most people, statistically, the vast majority, I suspect, will find. Well, we'll go to these statistics here. We should probably do that now. So we have some graphs that uh, show some numbers that were actually tabulated by the American Seniors Housing Association. Yes, Industry and, Trade Group. Okay, and are, you're on the board of that organization? Yes, on the executive board. Okay, so um, these are great, these those, slides. I literally got those yesterday, and it's the first time I've seen a lot of these numbers. So yeah, it's it's incredible information. Most people will never see these numbers. So so pay attention and look at this because this is very interesting. We've just recently had a chance to look at these. So let's talk about the the slide that we're seeing now. Independent living residents. So this is comparing uh, those people who are in first in the home top, but also in the the arrangement for the community, whether it's based on a contract or a fee structure. Then we have rental is, what, 93%? And and of that 93%, there's no entrance fee? Well, so the as I understand it, it's a very small percentage. We'd asked actually in the last session, you had asked my yeah. thoughts, and I didn't have the information on what percentage of people that do live in senior housing live in a financial structure that requires a front-end entry fee. 
And this is smaller, actually, than I had expected. I it's know. only about yeah. less than 10%. 7%. So oh, 93% of the people who do live in senior housing, right, live in a rental community versus a buy-in. Now, keep in mind, though, this is probably including, I don't know this, this might be including skilled care, which, of course, there wouldn't be an entrance fee because that 7% seems awfully low. Yeah. But still, anyway, so we won't linger on this. On the other side, it's based on cottage, villa versus apartment. And the only way you're going to get a cottage or villa as a practical matter based on the models, the financial models that are out there today, is in an entry or buy-in fee for the most part. Yeah, yeah. So so let's um, go to uh, this slide on current age level of care. Before you get there, one of the slides that we didn't include that I thought was fascinating is the total number of people living in independent living. What would you guess? Oh, I mean, 20 million? I don't know. Yeah, 26,000. What? Yeah. 26, that's it? Yeah, we should pull that slide. Yeah, that I think bl- we may have that mind. here. It's shocking. So not, not very many is my point. Yeah. And so my we'll, goodness, I didn't realize it was going to be that low. And I think we're going to come to that. So looking at the slide that, that you're seeing now. So this is of those, that group that live in the various levels of care. And so go, go each of you, look, look to the far right, and you'll see how you can translate each color into an age group. And what I find really troubling is how few of the people, and now we're talking independent living here, 6% are between the ages of 61 and 65. So if we say under 65, then there's only 10%. What's interesting about that, I'll just make a quick comment, is that that's been the focus of some new entrants, financial entrants, um, creating portfolios of companies that are like the old Dell Web communities, if anybody knows how Oh, I remember seeing yeah. the commercials on those. Uh, right? yeah, yeah, they're still around. They're called Active Adult or 55 Plus. So they're actually targeting that underserved age bracket with slightly different. So they have coffee shops and pubs and pickleball and a lot less staff, but a lot more activity that's generated and run by the residents themselves. Think of the, an apartment complex with um, some extra amenities. Yeah, yeah. They've Dell Webb. They kind of build a little town or community that that yeah. It's it's a whole div- self-contained. Right. Do we have any of those in Missouri? Do you know? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't. They're in Florida. They're in Phoenix. But they're popping up. There's some popping up in Chicago um, and other major cities. So I, I want I want you, though, you all to, our viewers, to appreciate the fact that if we go to age 60, we can go all the way to 70, and we're only picking up 12%. So of people who are living in independent living, that you still have some things available if you want it, but for the most part, you know, you're living on your own. It, it's kind of a luxury if you decide you want the paper delivered to your door and things like that. Uh, that that would characterize independent living. Some additional things you wouldn't get in a normal apartment. And it's in, in these communities we've talked about. And again, that percentage is of a very small number. Yeah, and, and yeah, the number very small number, but the point is you're still 12, 12% would be age 70 or below. So part of the problem, it seems, is people are waiting. 
they're staying in their homes. Now, again, some of you, we get it. Some of you want to age in your home, so great. But I'm just convinced that a lot of you, you know, would have enjoyed this all along if you had thought in your 60s about, boy, wouldn't it be cool to live in a community with others and to participate in these activities right. and meals and whatnot and and just this very social life, very active social life that's available. But but whenever you have numbers, percentages this small, and we're about to get the numbers you're talking about, uh, but percentages this small, it tells you that the potential consumer or client doesn't know. Um, maybe they don't know. But again, if you look at cigarette smoking or weight loss, sometimes knowledge is not enough. Yeah, okay. I mean, your point's well taken. I know you're right. I yeah. know you're right. It's more than information. From an industry perspective, there's a huge opportunity. We're talking now in the industry, again, the, the sources that be are talking about oversaturation. Is there too much, uh, not too many, uh, too much supply and not enough demand? I can't even. I just laugh at that. How can you be oversaturated when you're only penetrating less than ten percent of the people who could benefit from what you have? I think what we have is a communication opportunity. No, I I know you're right. It's a matter of of um, overcoming these biases, these fears, as you say. It, it is a matter of overcoming it, and I don't know how easy that's going to be. But I agree with you that that there's potentially this ton. And I think also it's generational. I was going to say that because I can see where this current generation of seniors are thinking of it as an old folks home. Yeah, there's a lot of and prejudice. And I think it'll change, you know, with, you know, the younger generations as they age, they won't think of it in that way. Yeah. But I think right now, yeah, old folks home. And it's not. Right, right. Now, yeah, I think the younger generation will be thinking Carnival Cruise. Yes, I well, think you're absolutely so, so right. So the latest model in terms of the 55-plus, the Carnival Cruise, is the Jimmy Buffett Margaritaville communities that are popping up. Oh, I think they're building one near Naples. Yeah. Did I yeah, read that? Yeah, there is one near Naples. Yeah, uh, uh, but closer to Fort Myers. Mm-hmm. But they're going to be, it'll be a chain. Canyon Ranch is also partnered with Watermark with a developer out of Tucson. And they're going to promote a wellness model. Okay. I mean, these things are just incredible. And uh, I think that, that part of the problem is you have to have a husband and wife both agree to do that. You have to sell them both on the change. And and so it might be common that, that you have one party who's more willing than the other. But in any case, uh, the slide in front of you now um, shows uh, the average age, the current age of residents by level of care. Now, I assume this is average. It could be median, but those numbers may be close to the same if they're fairly closely bunched together. So age 84. Now, we'll get more precise on this uh, distribution here in a slide coming up, and it may be this one here. Oh, yeah, this is the age at move-in by level of care. Now, this is very interesting. Look at, over at independent living, age of move-in. So look at down below, those categories below 62%, 60 to 65. Oh, geez, 2%, 4%, 66 to 70. 
This is just wow. shocking. I it mean, is. when you look at the overall average, one thing that you'll notice is that the current a- average age of current residents is 84 for independent living. Uh-huh. But if you flip over to the average age at move in, it's 80. Hmm. So people that the age at entry is trending down and yeah. COVID has played a part in that. Yeah, COVID has changed people's perspectives on where they live. But some were concerned that it would hurt communities, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the idea of community living. But you don't think that has been so? I think that there was some um, confusion over what was happening in nursing homes, which was horrible, especially in some of these state-run Medicaid homes where there was very poor adherence to just basic protocols, right? And frankly, they were funded by the state. They may not have been able to afford all the PPE and the cleansing and so forth. I I don't want to blame operators because there was a lot more involved. But what happened in the nursing homes with COVID was horrible. I think that was conflated somewhat in terms of what happened in many independent living Mm -hmm. and assisted living communities where actually people did far better than their counterparts who were living at home. And so on that bridge of fear... Right. What happens is the attraction of holding on, right? There's a counterweight. COVID became a counterweight to the resistance to moving. It became an impetus to move because people were living by themselves in homes, isolated. Isolated. Yeah. And that was hard for us, any of us at any age. Any age, right. Yeah. Yeah, the, you're right. The nursing home situation, it really was... Um, you know, an exceptional situation. There's no analogy to it. It was bad. It, it was like prisons and yeah. other places where people, the packing houses, where people were close together and there wasn't someone paying attention to their safety and well-being. And people should realize, though, that that we're, ta- we're virtually everything that you heard about that was bad was at a skilled care facility, meaning a quote-unquote nursing home. Well, by definition, anybody who is in a nursing home had to be in a nursing home. Now, I know that that's not in fact true, but according to... It's mostly true. It's mostly true. What I mean by that is you shouldn't have anybody living in a nursing home unless they have a medical need to be there. Right. Now, the reality on the ground is that a substantial percentage, some would say close to 50%, I don't think it's quite that high, are people who really don't have to be there, but they need Medicaid coverage. So they're living there because that's the only way they can get it paid for. Now, the, these laws have changed recently, and I know that, that they're, they're, they're wanting to create incentives for people to not be wasteful with public resources. And, and it's the government's fault when they create incentives where people have to do that in order to live. But So a lot of these people, though, who were in these nursing homes and said, well, gee, I want to go home, and some of them did go home, and maybe some of them couldn't go home because the of the rules locally in their state or city, then they felt imprisoned. But keep in mind, if if people are really following what are the rules regarding nursing homes, they should only be there if they have to be. And anybody who could choose whether or not they were there probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. And and that was that's a lot of people. And so it added to the problem, is all. And it confused the issue of congregate living um, because the independent living communities across the country and for the most part the assisted living communities Mm -hmm. had actually very good records when it comes to COVID. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
And and you still have your people who live in independent living. They can choose to leave if they wanted. Sure. So you know if they wanted to leave and go live with a relative, you know you you still had con- complete control of your schedule and your life. And same thing I'm sure is true for assisted living. It's the skilled care, care that was different that you were hearing about in the news, um, where some people who didn't have to be there were suddenly held hostage. They felt, but again, that was a complicated situation. So. Um, Let's move to the next slide. But I do find a trend here where everybody is, it seems like, bunching beyond age 80 on virtually all these, including independent living. Uh, But before we go go to the next slide, we're still at age at move-in by level of care. Look at how you, you see the numbers on independent living. They're still relatively late. In age, look at the orange is above uh, eighty. It's eighty-one to eighty-five. It's orange. So look at that. Twenty-six percent choose independent living during that period, Um, and look how few chose it. If you go to the gray, when they're seventy-six to eighty, not to mention seventy-one to seventy-five. So anecdotally, and I've been in the leasing trenches. I've been working hands-on with prospects for the last several months at my own community here in St. Louis. We are seeing people who are a little younger, but more importantly, who are coming in before the crisis. Before they have to. Before they have to. We actually had somebody in the last uh, couple of months, we've had several people who have come in actually looking, found us on the internet, came in, Looked, looked at several other places and made a decision within days. That's never happened in 35 years. Wow. To me, I've never right. seen that or experienced that. But it is happening now. Almost huh. like you'd make a decision to go move to an apartment and they go check one out and, yeah. and rent it. Usually it's a much more complex and a much longer sales cycle. Yeah, very interesting. We call those bluebirds. I think I've seen less than bluebirds. 10 bluebirds in 35 years, and I've probably seen 10 in the last three months. Mm. Yeah. So let's go to the next slide. Uh, age at move-in by level of care. Now, I'm assuming this is an average. Yes. Again, it could be medium. could be medium. Probably close to the same thing uh, in this case. Independent living, uh, essentially 81 years old. So we know that that, let me use a phrase here, standard deviation, we know that 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 is not a widespread around that number. We know that they're clustered real closely around 80. And then, of course, assisted living, 84. And that's an average. So uh, you believe that in the future, that maybe for the next generation, uh, if not this, that that average number for independent living will go down to what? What should it be, do you think? Oh, you know, when I was um, about 10 years old, I was tasked with taking my brother on the bus to go from Hebrew school to swim practice. And I, it was my first time, and I had my little brother there. On a bi-state on, bus? On a bi-state yeah. bus. And I found the nicest guy, and I said, can you tell me where to get off? Here's where I'm trying to go to, Del Mar and Union. And he said, oh, sure, it's really easy. Get off on the stop right before me. We go a little distance. The bus fills. He's in the front, and I'm in the back. And I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to know which stop is before <laughs> He's going to get off. Yes. 
Yeah. And yet every prospect that I meet with, right, for senior housing says, I'm going to move right before I have to. That's a great analogy. That <laughs> really it. is. And That's my a good question analogy. is, how do they know? That's a great one. Uh, and it, it, because I've heard people say that. Mm-hmm. I've heard people say exactly that. Yeah, right before when I the have time to. comes. When the time comes. Well, you know, when the time comes. And what does that mean when the time, yeah. you know? And, and as a practical matter, what it means is that the time will come and somebody else will be having to do it Make for the you. Make decision for you, and yes. It, and it won't be as good for you. And that's at the same time. This is where logic and emotion contradict. That's at the same time when they say, I'm not ready yet because I don't want to give up my independence. It's ironic because the independence you have is while you are actually in control, while you're actually independent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but anyway, we see these numbers, and now with memory care, you probably don't, there's probably not a lot of discretion there. I think there is. You think so? Why yeah. is that? So, I, I have actually um, been in a situation where our own memory care out in Creve Corps, Park Provence, mm-hmm. we pre leased our 120 something units of memory care which within the industry and within standard belief you can't do. No one would make the decision to move into a place that isn't even built yet. They're only going to make the decision when they have to. But by pre-leasing it, by signing people up, not only before they had to, but before the place was actually finished, right? demonstrates that you can change people's mind about their environment even when there's dementia, it's harder. There are more people involved. It's sad. Um, and yet the benefits are in terms of logic and reason to move into a well-run memory care community that's associated with a medical oversight and um, trained caregivers. The, the benefits logically are overwhelming. So you would even argue that as to memory care, um, people are waiting too long. Yes. Maybe families are reluctant to, you know, to put their loved one there. Because of the stigma. Yes. Because of what they imagine to be the case. Yeah, and the stigma of, me- of mental illness among this generation. Hmm. Uh, that's interesting. Remember so, Mad Men, the TV show? Yeah. There's one episode about mental illness, and like everything else, yeah. it was just disparaged. It was just not thought about. It was something that brought shame to you. Yeah. And yeah. to your family. And to your family. Yeah. Like poverty. Yeah. Hmm. Good point. So let's go to this slide. Uh, tenure at the community by level of care. And again, this tenure is affected by when people decide to go. So let's look at independent living. And I focus on that because that that is where, you know, I see a, a lot happening that's very cool and this analogy that we've used to being on a vacation, uh, you you see it most uh, evident in an independent living, but it continues because the same the same communities typically will have all three levels of care if it ha- if it's a continuum of care community. So they'd have the independent living. The same community would have assisted living and then and then memory care or skilled care. So looking at independent living, uh, one what is it one percent have been there. Uh, between nine and ten years, or less than ten years. Yeah. Uh, 
So look at... My mom is one of, one of those 1%. 1%, okay. But, she moved in with my dad in 1999. He passed away in 2008. The best thing that ever happened to her is she was already in the community, integrated, knew the staff, knew the facility. She's now 97 in November, and she's still there, and she's 1%. Wow. Wow. Yeah, well, now your family should be poster children or That's poster older thinking, adults. Yeah. Uh, so this 32% here, which I guess is the black, is that the black? Which means it's uh, less than three years. So you can see how there's relatively short periods of time that you're seeing here that people are living in independent living. And that, of course, is the result of the fact that people are coming later, and then some percentage, incidentally, are transitioning to assisted living. So we don't can't distinguish those from this, can we? No, not yeah. on this particular graph. Yeah. So uh, it's just a shame that that people are not choosing to arrive a decade earlier. Some uh, people. Some people. Yeah. And so, you know what else is amazing from an industry perspective, right? Overall occupancies dropped during COVID, but even if you go pre-COVID, right, the standard for independent living was around eight, around 90%. In other words, 10% vacancies. Hmm. That's went down to the, around 80% during COVID. It's bouncing back up. But even at 80% of a 100-unit community, you're only talking about 20 people. These are really small numbers. This is like the corner delicatessen. But that's right not on a the typical bag. facility. I mean, sorry, pardon the word facility. Yes. That's not a typical community. Sure, a typical community is 100 to 150 units. Okay, so when you say the 20%... Vacancy, which is the low point in COVID on average. It's a reduction of 20 people. Yeah, it's nothing. Yeah. Right, okay. There are thousands of people who could benefit and take the place of those 20. Mm-hmm. So it's not like processing something at Walgreens or CVS to keep track. It's 20 people. You can do it on a paper bag. So, it, but, but it's still not, occupancy is still not up to the 90% yet? No, it's, it's still in the 80s, the last I saw. Okay. From industry uh, number. It's coming up, trending back up. Right. Yeah. So I, there's more inquiries. People are closing at a slightly younger age, um, and it's trending back. But it's coming back slowly. When you think about the numbers, yeah, mm. they're so small. Well, look at let, let's talk about this slide here. I don't know if there's anything you can do about this, and this is the resident gender by level of care. Uh, this is what I've seen when I've gone to speak in independent living or assisted living facilities. I'm not spoken <gasps> at a skilled care facility. You said this. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you're right. It's the F word. <laughs> I got to get that out of me. Uh, Change so, is hard. Yeah. yeah. So uh, independent living, though, look at these ratios. And essentially the same for... Women. For assisted living. And this is what I see. As a matter of fact, I've gone to places to speak in which I'll, there'll be a room where they'll set aside place for people to have public speaking or special speakers or events. And, and I'll go in there and I'll look at the audience, which all are older, and I can tell you, I can count on one hand the number of guys right. in, a, in a room like that. So what what I've physically seen is a relationship of less than 31% between 
being male. I've seen 20% and that 20% is probably closer to what I've randomly observed. Now, that's anecdotal, so I'm sure these statistics are correct. But look at that relationship. I bet the men aren't complaining. Uh, no. I mean, all the women it's, there. It's reverse high school. <laughs> the women yeah. are chasing the guys. Yeah, well, uh, you know. Fighting and I, over them, I bet. Yeah. Doing more than chasing. I bet they're fighting. So while some people will say, well, gee, when you look at the average age expectancy based on gender and you look at it as a percentage of your whole life, you may say, well, it's not that big a difference. It's like four or five years maybe. But if you concentrate it into a period of your last, the last 10 years of your life, then that difference in lifespan becomes a huge percentage like we're looking at here. So just interesting for those of you to note. The other day at lunch, one of the topics of conversation for my mother was to ask me why that is. She looked around the room and she wanted to know why I thought that was. It's a great question. Yeah, I think it's more, I think it's genetic or I, I think I'm not sure we can get male lifespans to the same. I'm sure some of it is related to health practices when we were young. And men. career, the career orientation. I mean, I remember I was in the first class at Wash U where we had 50% women and that was like a big deal instead of just being the expectation. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point that you make, that um, it could be based on the occupations that men have versus women. Could be. Um, but but men in greater numbers do, you know, they have, I, I don't know about smoking. Smoke, women, did they catch up with guys in smoking? I don't know the answer. But, you know, that was a big, I'm sure, a big factor in the difference in longevity over the last century, and assuming that there was a gender difference. But let's go to one other slide. And that's the marital status by level of care. I want to get your comments on this. Uh, so for independent living, it looks like 46% is they move in as a couple, whereas for assisted living, 29% move in as a couple. And then, of course, we have the green, which is widowed, and and, of course, 55% for assisted living and 46%, 42% for independent living. Um, so what do, you, what do you see in terms of trends of husbands and wives together making the decision versus when the husband, I say husband, typically the husband has died? Yeah, I, I think these accurately reflect anecdotally what I've experienced. Um, it's rare to have couples. Actually, I'm surprised that in assisted living and memory care, the couple's number is that high. Yeah, I knew one of those couples that did that. So do you, do you sometimes find that there is a difference in agreement between the couple that it really, when we've been talking today about the difficulty of getting people to consider this option, how it's sometimes difficult to get each individual, but to get two people. Mm-hmm. To, to agree. To both reach that conclusion. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Have you talked to couples who've been in that situation? Oh, many, many, many times. Um, my own personal experience more in independent living than assisted living. Um, and in independent living, one of the things I like to figure out for myself early on is who do I think makes decisions? How does the couple make decisions? 
one key that I found that's very um, revealing about that is to ask them how they met. Really? Yeah. And not the facts, but how they fell in love. Okay. And when someone tells you that... Yeah, how does that work? Whoever chased who typically defers to that person in terms of decision-making. So the chaser, you're saying, is the one that makes those... Yeah, who defers. The chaser defers. Oh, the chaser defers to... Yes, to the person who's being chased. To the one that's being pursued. Isn't that interesting? Do you find that holds... For a lot of things. Oh, yeah. For a lot of things. Plus, just in the telling of the story, brings it fresh into both of their minds um, so that they can think about it themselves. That's it doesn't funny. matter if I figure it out. It matters if they figure well, it out. Well, and I would think with this generation, it would be the man who was the one pursuing. You'd be surprised. Really? Okay. Yeah. I would think. But, you know, in a lot of cases— a woman wears the pants in the family. Well, wait. So what about you and your husband? Would you say that would describe? Yes. Really? He did pursue me. And and you but and you make the decisions. You make the final decision. I make a lot of the final decisions. Yeah. And it's funny. I would say the same thing. I pursued my wife and she may not agree with this, but it is true. She makes the final decisions. <laughs> she really does. Well, you know what they say? Happy wife, happy life. Yes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting observation. I'd never heard that theory before. But yeah, it does I just make found s- that to be true over the years in asking people questions and listening, not just to the, the first thing they'll tell you is the plot, right? But what I'm really interested in is the juice, the passion. Where did, how did that happen? And in the telling, it reveals a lot about their decision making. That is interesting. Mm-hmm. You all may have heard my dog just come in the studio here. She was scratching at the door, and we thought the lesser evil was to let her in. She I'm likes sure. to make an appearance. Yeah, that may or may not have been the lesser evil. But <laughs> anyway, she's stretched out here for the time being. So I think we covered this slide. Um, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about kind of the marital status and how it relates to this decision. Some of Many of you are married, I know, and you have to both agree. Okay, so we've uh, taken a little longer than we originally planned. Uh, this was intended to be a show for about uh, 45 minutes, but this is what happened last time, I think. David does it to us every time. Anyway, so it's your fault, David. But <laughs> anyway, I, there's a lot of information here we know that that um, is will be useful to you. Uh, we'll continue to talk about this topic, and uh, we'll have David back in the future. Uh, if anybody wants to touch base with you, we'll have go to the website of Tucker Allen, and we'll have links to, to David and his book and some other ways you can uh, reach him. So in any case, um, this has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week, we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.